All right, so a couple reasons why we've set aside six weeks this summer to address questions that our young people are asking. First one is, if you're between the ages, this morning, sitting here or watching online, if you're between the ages of 18 and 29 years old, we realize that church may seem like it's not a place for you. You can look around and see people who, most people here are not your age. At times, we as a church have not done a great job encouraging you and supporting you. But we want for you to know, one of the reasons why we're doing this series, we want for you to know that this is your church too. Yeah, it is just as much your church as it is anyone else's. Another reason is that we recognize that church may not be the place where you think to go to get your questions answered, important questions that you might have. Maybe it's because it seems like your questions are not important to the rest of the church body. That, that might be the case. Maybe it seems like your questions are not welcome here, that if you were to ask certain honest questions that you have, that we would just be like, we would bristle and say, oh, no, 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 not here. That's, that's not where we question those kinds of things. If that has been your experience, then personally, I would like to apologize to you. Sorry about that. And I'd like to repeat something that I mentioned last week. We want to make a clear statement through this sermon series that church is the place for questions to be asked. No honest question is off limits here. We don't claim, as Pastor Michael said, we don't claim to have all the answers, but we are committed to joining you, to coming together as a church family, joining you in finding answers to these questions, or at least journeying together in that process. So far, we've talked about uh, some of the questions that that have been asked. How do I know that I am saved? We addressed that question a few weeks back. Pastor Michael did. Uh, Last week, uh, talked about how how we can know the Bible can be trusted. How do we know that? How do we know that that this book is authoritative and I can base my life on it? Coming up next week, Pastor Michael is going to be talking about why it is that the way God acts in the Old Testament seems to be very different from how he acts in the New Testament. He's going to be addressing that question. And then in two weeks uh, from now, we're going to be looking at how do, we, how do we reconcile the biblical description of creation and the flood with what science is showing? Is there, is there a way to do that? Is it, what we look at science and what we find in science, does that support what the Bible has to say? Is there evidence for a creation, evidence for, for flood? for the flood in, in, in science. And so uh, Dr. Art Chadwick is going to be talking about that. By the way, these, these uh, flyers and little cards that are on your, your seat, we've put them there because we want for you to invite your friends, invite neighbors, invite coworkers. We're doing some advertising. We want for this, ser- this um, creation seminar, August 6th and 7th, to be something for the community as well. So encourage you to, to get the word out. Uh, you won't be disappointed in inviting a friend. Dr. Chadwick has, has vast experience speaking to secular campuses. He, he, he's a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. Um, he teaches at Southwestern Adventist University, so he understands both worlds um, in the church and also in the community, and he's able to speak very well to both of those. So I encourage you to invite your friends and, and your neighbors to that event. All right, so today, the question that we are going to be asking is— How do we know our worship services are spirit-led? How do we know that God's in this, what we're doing? Or is it just the preference of of um, of church leaders? 
How do we know that our, that our worship services are spirit-led? And before I uh, attempt to address this issue, uh, I'd like to just pause for a word of prayer. So please, please join me if you would. Heavenly Father, we look to you as the source of wisdom, the source of light, of understanding. I pray that you would illuminate the truth Show us, God, how we can know if we are spirit-led. Lord, we don't want to just be going through motions. We don't want to just be devoting ourselves to a culture that that is is not where you're at. We want to be led by you. So I pray that you would give us a heart to receive what you want to say to us. Speak to us through the Bible, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So I don't know who asked this question— but I want to applaud them for their desire to follow God. Now I'm just going to guess that someone who is excited about church, excited about the way things are currently at, love the music, love the the whole liturgy, love the the order of service, love everything that we do. They're just getting something out of it every time. They're, they're, They're connecting with it. It's speaking to them. Chances are that person is not asking this question right? Chances are the elements in our worship service are not appealing to certain young people. They have preferences for something different, and so, and so the question uh, that, that they're asking here is, man, is this really it? But I want to applaud them, because it shows some real spiritual maturity. Because in spite of their preferences to see changes to our worship service, they want to know if the Spirit is leading our worship service. I think that's really noble to desire that. Not just say, hey, this is what I want, let's just change it. No, no, no. To say, all right, if I have to adapt, at least I want to know that there's a good reason that the Spirit is leading this. And so I, I just want to applaud that. But in order to answer this question here, I think it's important to to consider what place our preferences have in worship and how God views our preferences. When it comes to worship, God has some very specific things to say in the Bible. Um, One of the outstanding statements we find written by God himself In the Ten Commandments, the Fourth Commandment, he says to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. That this 24-hour period from Friday night sundown to Saturday night sundown is a specific time, uh, an experience with God, a, a time of worship. He doesn't tell us that we can just choose whatever day we would like to for our Sabbath. You know, if it's not convenient on Saturday, God doesn't say, choose whatever you want. No, God is very specific. He says, I'm setting aside a specific day of the week, and I choose the seventh day. So he sets it aside. He's very specific about that. However, within the context of observing the Sabbath, there are a variety of ways to keep the Sabbath day holy, a variety of ways for worship, specifically in in our worship service. Here are a couple of examples I'd like to, to throw out. One is, is this. Some Christians are dead set on a particular posture in prayer. Now, that may not be our church congregation, but there are some Christians out there who say the only appropriate posture in prayer is this, kneeling. And, of course, kneeling is a wonderful posture of prayer. It symbolizes um, submission to God. It symbolizes trust in Him, that we're looking to Him. 
Uh, we have biblical precedents for kneeling in prayer. Daniel famously would set aside three times a day where he would open up the windows of his uh, his residence, and look out towards Jerusalem, miles and miles away. And the Bible says that he would kneel in prayer and talk to his friend, to God. We see this also in the New Testament, where Paul, in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14, he says, I, I bow my knees before the Father, and I pray that you would understand the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of his love. Paul's kneeling before God. There's, there's some incredible examples here of spiritual giants who prayed by kneeling and, and showed their humility towards God through this posture and prayer. But what's very interesting as we look in the Bible is that kneeling is not the only posture in prayer where spirit-led people are coming to God. Jesus, the most spirit-led person that's ever walked this earth, Jesus talks about standing during prayer. When you go to the temple, pray as you, as you pray standing, Jesus says. Let me put some examples up there. Here we go. At times, King David, when he would go before God, King David had an incredible experience with God. He would go before God, and at times, he would sit in God's presence. That was appropriate. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he fell prostrate on his face and talked to God. At times, people prayed out loud in the Bible. Sometimes, like in the case of Hannah, as she desired to have a child, she went before God's presence, and she prayed silently. Sometimes people bowed down as Elijah did when he prayed for rain, his head between his knees. Other times, people looked up towards heaven when they prayed. Biblically speaking, there is no one set posture in prayer. The Spirit leads us to pray. God's Spirit moves upon us and, and leads us to commune with God, but how this happens is influenced by our circumstances and by our preferences. During prayer time in church, we just had it here. We invited you to kneel, but if kneeling down would cause you pain or injury, please remain seated, right? There's a variety of postures that are acceptable in variety of postures of prayer that are acceptable to God. When you're driving down the road— Please do not close your eyes when you pray. It's, it's okay. You can pray with your eyes open. And God wants for us to be communing with him as we're driving, which means you would need to pray with you. Please, pray with, your, pray with your, your eyes open when you're driving. One aspect of worship where personal preference is especially noticeable is how we praise God, how we express praise to God. If you've been to a variety of different worship uh, services, different churches, different cultural worship services, you've observed that people do things differently in different places. There are different preferences for some things, different preferences for other things, different styles of, of singing, different styles of expression. As we look at the, at the Psalms, the Psalms teaches us that God also accepts a variety of worship expressions. Worshippers are instructed to do a variety of things in the Psalms. We have worshipers instructed to clap their hands. That's biblical. That's a biblical expression. To shout to the Lord, to, to sing with a loud voice. That is a biblical expression. To lift up our hands in an expression of receptivity. Open hands mean I've got nothing to bring here and everything to receive. God, I come to you and I want to receive from you. 
worshipers were asked in the Psalms to do these things. They were instructed, I should say, to do these things. In Psalm 49, it tells worshipers to dance in worship. To praise God with the timbrel and with stringed instruments. A variety of physical expressions, a variety of musical instruments, variety of sounds. God says, do these things. We're instructed to praise God in all these different ways. Um, In Habakkuk chapter 2, it tells a, a little different expression. It says, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth stand in awe and silence. Silence is also an appropriate worship expression. Clearly, God welcomes different forms of worship, and by looking at these different examples, what we see here is not a restrictive list, but what we see is are, are examples of how the Spirit leads people to worship. Now, I'd just like to say, thankfully, dance is not the only way to worship. Can you imagine if dance was the only way? To, I would not want—you don't want to see me dancing. It would be awkward and really distracting if I were, if if dance was the only, okay, God, dance is the only, all right, I'm gonna give it a try here. Um, But dancing made a lot of sense to the Hebrew culture. That's what we're reading about here in the psalm. We read, when it says here in the psalm, that's speaking to the Hebrew culture. Dance was all over in the, in the Hebrew culture. They had over 11, they had 11 different words for dancing. Like, they're very much about this physical, bodily expression. It made sense in their culture because it's such a big part of their life. So when the Bible tells them, when it instructs Hebrew people to dance, there in Psalm 149, for example, there are other places too, by the way, the Hebrew people knew exactly what to do because they understood what worshipful dancing looks like. They knew that. It was was part of their way of life. It was an expression of, of joy. It was an expression of victory. It was a, it was a celebration. It was, it was an expression of praise. They, they knew exactly what to do because everyone danced. It's not like this, our culture, where if you don't dance, you don't dance. You know what I mean? Like, um, their culture, everyone danced. Like, it didn't, like where do you dance? Everyone dances in the, in the, in the Hebrew culture. Everyone, everyone did it. And so when they danced, it was, the focus was on celebrating what God had done, praising God, not upon their dancing ability. So if we were to say today, because they danced in the Bible, we should therefore here at the Medford Seventh-day Adventist Church dance. That's what we should do during our, our service. We would be forcing we would be forcing a worship expression upon us that doesn't fit with most of us, if not all of us. I don't know. And it would be so uncomfortable that it would take away from the purpose of worship. Our, our, our looking at God, we'd be looking at other people. Look at them. Look right. Right? It, it doesn't fit, and so it would be a distraction. But under the umbrella... God's specific will regarding worship. There is room for our preferences. Perhaps you don't prefer to sing out loud. Maybe you would just rather speak. Perhaps you, you prefer to, to use a musical instrument. There's, there's a variety of different expressions that, that the Spirit leads us in, in, in worship. In and of themselves, our preferences are not wrong. But what is wrong is when we elevate our personal preferences to gospel truth. 
give you an example. Before pastoring here in Oregon, so I'm just going to tell you it's nobody that you know here. Um, before pastoring in Oregon, a church member challenged me uh, on the use of contemporary Christian worship music in church. Now, the worship leaders at, at, at this particular church um, use guitars, they use piano, some, they use bass guitars, they were a variety of different instruments. They also use something called a djembe, which is, which is a hand drum um, that originated from uh, Africa. And um, this particular church member, I think, mainly had a problem with the percussion instrument, with the hand drum. And so they gave a variety of reasons why these why certain instruments should not be used in the worship service. And, and they, had a, uh, they did some, quite a bit of research, like, okay, the djembe, it, it has its origin in uh, ancestry worship in Africa, where they would summon uh, spirits of, of people who had, who had died, and they would use that. It, it, would be, it was used and, and can be used to, to bring people to a hypnotic state, and they had all kinds of different uh, reasons. But it really stood out to me as interesting that none of the reasons that this individual gave and, and, and presented came from the Bible, the Seventh-day Adventist Christian. Like, we do things, we follow the Bible. That's why we go to church on Saturday and variety of other, believe a variety of other things that other people may not believe, other Christians may not believe. It, we're committed to following the biblical text, but he was the Seventh-day Adventist Christian that was not coming to the biblical text, and that would be fine if the Bible had nothing to say about drums, for example, in worship. But in fact, it does. This right here, timbrel, it comes from a Hebrew word, and the word is tof, and the Hebrew tof was a hand drum. That's, that's what it was. They used drums. And here, Psalm 149, you see it with Psalm 152. It says, praise the Lord. Use a variety of different instruments, and one of the instruments there is the drum. So not only does the Bible say, hey, this, the Bible has something to say about drums, but it also says, use them, use them. There are a variety of, of expressions of worship. Now, do you have to use a drum to praise God? No, you don't. But there are a variety of expressions that are acceptable to God. And I think it's so important for us to be biblical when we consider our preferences. Because when we begin to spiritualize our preferences as gospel truth, worship becomes something that we control rather than something that the Spirit leads us in. And when we're in control, this leads to all kinds of disputes, like crazy disputes about stuff, like the order of worship. I, I'm really grateful that in our church there is there's openness to different orders of worship here. But in some churches, it's not that way. You move when the offering is collected, and you have violated a moral principle. This is what happens when we, when we start to elevate our preferences to gospel truth. We, we start to control things. This also happens when it comes to the style of, of worship. We, we begin to have disputes as to which style of worship music is acceptable to God. Is it hymns or is it contemporary Christian music? Well, hymns, they're not out of date. Hymns express beautiful spiritual truths. They, they teach spiritual realities in a profound way that has a place in our worship service. Contemporary Christian music, it brings some really positive things to the table. It engages the heart and the emotions. I sense that in, in, in the worship that you all let out in. Thank you. Thank you for drawing my heart 
into this experience of submission and, and admiration of our great and beautiful God. And also, if you notice, there's something that, that many Christian contemporary worship songs do is they actually take words from the Bible, word for word, and they, and they bring them to mute. They, they put beautiful music to them. And you'll, you'll see these, these verses that just come out of these songs, and it is actually a restoration of kind of a lost spiritual discipline called memorizing Scripture. Christian contemporary music is bringing that back. And that's a wonderful thing. Spirit-led worship allows for a variety of worship expressions. So here's the question. If there is not one particular thing, like if we can't say, all right, if you're singing hymns, you're worshiping, you're led by the Spirit. There's a variety of different expressions. And if that is the case, how do we know if the Spirit of God is leading our worship services? To answer this question, I'd like you to turn, like to invite you to turn with me to John chapter 16. We're going to look at verses 12 through 14. Uh, it's page 1083 in your pew Bible. Go ahead and put that up there for you. Um, here at this point in the Gospel of John, Jesus is just hours away from being arrested and crucified. So these are the last words of Jesus before his death, significant statements of Jesus to his disciples. And although I think it's important to keep in mind, too, that Jesus has personally selected these disciples to learn from him and to do something very, very important. They were to establish his church on earth after Jesus is gone, after his ascension. That's the situation. <clears throat> At this point, these men still do not understand some really important principles as to why Jesus even came to this earth. At this point, they're still thinking that soon he's going to set up his earthly kingdom. He's going to overthrow the Romans, and they're going to be leaders of the, of the Jewish nation, which will dominate the world. They had all of these ideas. They had some real misunderstandings. So from a human point of view, their lack of understanding as to the real reason why Jesus came, it, it's scary. Things are not looking good for the future of the church from a human point of view, but it's very interesting that Jesus is not anxious, even though this is the situation among his followers that are about to take the lead because he is soon to leave. But in John chapter 16, verses 12 through 14, we get an understanding as to why Jesus is not anxious about this situation. Look at what it says, verse 12. Jesus speaking, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. Verse 13, but when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only, he will speak only what he hears. And he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. Jesus is understanding that the disciples are just beginning in their journey of being spiritual leaders in his church. There's many more things Jesus recognizes that the disciples needed to learn. But in spite of all that they still had to learn, Jesus assures them they, they can still be spirit-led people. His spirit will come and he will speak only about Jesus, and he will guide them into all truth. I believe that this promise is relevant for us today, 
Though the Medford Seventh-day Adventist Church may still have much to learn, God's Spirit is moving among us. He is leading us. And if we are willing to follow, if we are willing to, to move from perhaps places that we have occupied spiritually for a very long time, places where we are just comfortably, perhaps miserable, if we are willing to move out of that place, then we will be a spirit-led church. If we're willing to follow, that's what it comes down to. Now, a number of years ago, I was watching a gymnastics competition. This was a qualifier for the Olympic Games, much like what has just taken place, and the Olympics have just started, and that's super exciting. Um, but here at this qualifier, there were many promising athletes, and they were out doing these incredible routines and performing, uh, performing moves that never had been seen before in competition, doing some incredible things. And, and so, uh, Competitor after competitor came and, and began to do these performances. And just then, an older athlete stood up and took the floor to perform his routine. Now, the gymnastics world knew this older athlete very well. The commentators, I remember them saying, oh, wow, wow it's been a long time since we've seen this guy. He, he's an Olympian. This guy has, he, he did some incredible things uh, in, in his Olympic career as a gymnast. And, and now he was trying to make a comeback, much older than all the other competitors. Now, clearly this, clearly this, this man, he had trained well, he was toned, he, he knew his, his routine well, he had worked really, really hard. And so he, when he went out and performed his floor routine, he did it flawlessly. However, he did not make the Olympic team. Here's why. He performed the same routine that made him an Olympian years earlier. I remember the commentator saying, I recognize these. This is the same exact routine that, that he performed years earlier, and it worked back then. But now, it didn't work anymore. It didn't make sense to what he was trying to— it wasn't relevant to making the Olympic team. Back then, those moves were current, but the sport had progressed. And because he didn't change with the times— his flawless performance didn't matter anymore. Now, I realize that as we think about church, we're not talking about our performance here, but the attitude is the same because change can be scary. The way we've always done things is often the most comfortable for maybe our seasoned leaders. I don't know if you call me a seasoned leader, but that often it's like, well, how have we always done church? Let's just do it again that way. Let's, you know, that, that, can be, that can be very comfortable. But, like any good teacher, the Holy Spirit is moving us along to a new, new places, to new experiences. He is moving us along to something better. What is that something better? It tells us in John 16, verse 14. It says, He, the Spirit of truth, will glorify me. Jesus is speaking. This is the role of the Holy Spirit. This is all the Spirit does, is to glorify Jesus. Jesus is an infinite being, and so experiencing Jesus means that we are constantly growing more and more in understanding him because he is infinite. We'll never arrive and saying, oh yeah, I've fully experienced Jesus. There's always going to be something more, and the Spirit of God is moving us along, and the way the Spirit does this is by glorifying Jesus. Now, if you have ever had your portrait taken— you know the importance of light. I mean, you can be dressed up, have, have, 
pressed clothes, hair, having a good hair day. You could be looking your best, but if the lighting's not right, that picture can turn out like you showed up for your mugshot at the prison, right? Does it, it's not going to look good. Lighting makes all the difference. And just like a photographer uses light to bring the best out of someone, out of the best out of, out of our, our portraits, in the same way, the role of the Spirit is to highlight the goodness of, of Jesus, to highlight his attributes, to, to, to shine a light so that they, they, they just shine in their brilliance. We see the beauty of who Jesus is. The Spirit reveals Jesus as the healer. Who does not want that? Who does not want to come closer to that, to be healed? The Spirit reveals Jesus as the one who gives life to the dead. He is the one who provides forgiveness for all sins ever committed. Jesus does this for us. The work of the Spirit is to illuminate or call attention to the beautiful character of Jesus. And since the Spirit is constantly pointing to Jesus, we can know whether our worship services, to answer the question, we can know whether our worship services are Spirit-led. Here's why. Here's how. If Jesus is the main attraction in our worship services, we can know that those worship services are Spirit-led. Because that's the only thing that the Spirit does. He is there to reveal Jesus, to glorify Jesus. So we look to see if Jesus is the main event. Is it Jesus that we're talking about? Is it Jesus that is the focus? Is it Jesus that we're looking to, to want to know and see and experience more of? And if that is the case, that is a good indicator that the Spirit of God is leading in that worship service. So whether it's sundown Vespers, Sabbath school, if you don't know what Vespers is, you can ask someone. They'll know. Sabbath school, or if it's church, that's what we're asking. Is Jesus the main attraction? Whether it's the singing of beautiful hymns, or whether it's the singing of Christian contemporary worship that engages the heart, the question is, is Jesus being lifted up? Are, are people being drawn to know him more? So here's the final consideration that I would like to bring to your attention. What if, after observing Vespers and Bible classes? What if after observing the church and listening to the music, hearing the prayers, what if, what if after being in the worship experience, it seems to you that Jesus is not the main attraction? What should you do? What if you come to the conclusion that my, the services at my church are not spirit-led? What should you do? A few years ago, I was invited to be the guest speaker at a church service. And afterwards, I was visiting with one of the church members. This lady, she was very involved in the worship service. She was, she was part of the music, um, and she did this. She told me, I'm pretty much involved in, in worship, either coordinating music or I'm, I'm playing uh, my, my violin. Pretty much every Sabbath, she was involved. And she told me something that I hope that I never forget. She said something really significant. In the course of the conversation, she basically said that she really didn't see eye to eye with the pastor. Um, she didn't appreciate the pastor's leader. I mean, she wasn't giving specifics, not trying to badmouth. She was just saying, hey, you know, I just, I just don't connect with the pastor. I don't, I don't really get where he's coming from, and, and I'm not—his leadership doesn't resonate with my values. And, and she was saying these things about the—she's like, I don't really even like the pastor's sermon. She told me that. But basically, after saying that the church service 
consistently was not a blessing for her. She told me, Brian, in spite of this, every Sabbath, I am blessed. And I'll tell you why. Because I don't come to church to see what I can get. I go to church to give. And as I'm giving, as I'm sharing what God has given to me, the gifts that he's given, as I'm sharing the beauty of who he is through music, I am blessed. I'm filled every Sabbath. I hope I never forget that. Because this is how Jesus responds to cultures that are spiritually dead. I mean, let's look at what he did in coming to this earth. This is how Jesus responds to a spiritually dead church. Instead of staying in heaven where he was praised by perfect worship, the beauty and the peace of heaven all around him, he decided to enter our world to lay aside his preferences and look for ways to serve, look for ways to give. When his church leaders were fighting about who was the greatest. Pretty good indicator that they weren't being spiritually led, right? They're fighting about who's the greatest. They're trying to jockey for position in this future government that they hoped Jesus would set up, trying to put other people down, trying to lift themselves up. When he saw that the church was not spiritually led, we're not, we're not spirit-led, instead of going and looking for another church, Jesus served. He looked to give. May we each take a page out of Jesus' playbook. When we see that, it, that church may be struggling, when we're not seeing evidence that it is led by the Spirit, let's not look for another church. Let's look to serve. Please, young people, don't walk away. Look to serve. We call this, this experience the Last Supper, where Jesus washed the feet of unspiritual people. And something incredible happened by giving himself in humble service to these, to these men, these future founders, leaders of his church. By giving in service to them, instead of walking away, he impacted their lives so profoundly that he changed their culture. And these men became the leaders of a spirit-led movement. Spiritual awakening. They were filled by the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. The gospel goes to the world. Profound changes, and today we are still benefiting from the impact of that act of service in washing the disciples' feet. If our church is going to be spirit-led today, we all have a part to play, especially young people. You have a part to play. God is moving us. And sometimes, as I mentioned, this can be scary. Young people, you bring so much to the table, in, especially in this sense, that you are open to being moved, open to change, open to trying new things. And I've been inspired by that. Please continue to lead. The Spirit is constantly going to be at work lifting up Jesus. That is what he does. And so we're constantly going to be moved on to new experiences. And as we get to know Jesus and see the beauty of who he is, as we sang about, we're not going to want to stay in place. 
We're going to want to experience new things. Kind of like someone who is drowning gasps for air. When we, when we see the beauty of who, who Jesus is, we're going to want to leave the drowning experience, the dying experience that we have left to ourselves. And we're going to want to breathe in this beautiful experience that the Spirit breathes into us. We need everyone to look for the ways God's Spirit is leading. Young people, seasoned Christians, children. Let's look for how God is leading in our lives. Look for how God is leading in our church. Let's, and we do that by praying. We do that by getting involved, by sharing our perspectives, by learning from those who have walked with Jesus, that have, have experiences with Jesus. And together, as we pull together, encouraging one another, we can follow Jesus and be a Spirit-led church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, forgive us for resisting you. Forgive us, God, for demanding to do it our own way. Forgive us for taking our eyes off of you and worshiping our preferences. We thank you that you take those into consideration. We thank you that worship is not a a rigid experience, but where the Spirit is, there is freedom. I pray, God, that we would come together as a church family and seek to experience more of Jesus. Thank you for how you've led us. Thank you for the experiences of Jesus that we have had here in the Medford Seventh-day Adventist Church. But we want to grow. We want something better. And we trust that you are leading us that way. We pray for the courage to follow. In Jesus' name, amen.